0: Welcome to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with innovators, challenging the status quo to create a better world. You're listening to season one, our series on space as a service. I'm your host, Caleb Parker. That's at Caleb underscore Parker on Twitter and Instagram. And this season, I'll be chatting with executives creating the future of commercial real estate. If you're a landlord, if you're an asset owner, if you're an agent, if you're in corporate real estate, you need to be listening because we're answering all the questions you need to know about space as a service. Greetings industry friends. Today we're talking changes coming to building valuations with Dan Hughes. More specifically, we're going to chat about the impact space as a service has on the valuation of commercial assets. Now Dan spent his career working across the built environment and has held senior roles in some of the world's leading data organizations. Dan led the land and property sector strategy and commercial activity at Ordnance Survey, which was the world's leading location data specialist. And he was also the director of data and information products for RICS, the Royal Institute of Charter Surveyors. Dan currently is the founder of Alpha Property Insight and Liquid Real Estate Innovation, which both help the property sector to embrace and benefit from new ways of thinking and technology. And Dan recently published the Liquid Future Evaluations paper, which is going to lead me to my first question. Dan, if I quote the report, the commercial real estate sector is at the initial stages of a digital revolution, and both the value of properties and the way they are calculated is set to change in the coming years and decades. So I assume data and access to real-time data plays a significant role in this digital res- revolution. Am I right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and hello, thank you very much for having me. So I, I think it's fair to say that valuations has always been a data-driven business. So the way you work out value has always been based on comparables, looking at the data in the market and understanding things. What we're seeing happen is that the volume of data that's out there is getting bigger. So it's growing really, really quickly. And at the same time as that, people are finding that data itself has value. So we're starting to look at uh, the value of data itself. And also the people who are in a building are becoming more interested in what the building does for them. So in the past, you'd have, if we're talking about offices, you'd have had a, a box. You put people in, you sign a long lease and, and mm-hmm. you kind of go with it. And so naturally the valuation process looks at what are the comparable buildings, similar leases, and how does that, how does that feed into the valuation? What we're finding now is, and we're only at the very early stages of this, but looking at how does brand affect people? How does a building help them be productive or happy? Or how does it affect well-being? Things like sustainability has gone up the agenda a lot in the last several years, but in the last year or so in particular. And all of those factors are starting to change the behavior of the people going into the buildings both the the customers who are actually in there Mm. and also the people signing the leases Mm. and and we were just talking before this if you look at all of the spaces of service co-working flexible working leases are getting shorter people have much more choice and so all of that drives the value of a building or an office building in this case Mm. and data is available on all of those influences
0: well i want to zero in on one area of the report that suggests building user data because you keep talking about users. So in that report, it says building user data can affect the valuation of a building. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I guess there are a couple of points to make about this. So the first one is, if we just talk about the value of a building, so an office building, how valuable is it? It's down to how much money it makes and, uh, and that's a large driver of it. And we can look backwards from there to state some relatively obvious things about the more vacancy you don't have and the higher rents mean that people are going to be Um, paying more money, therefore the value is higher. And what we've seen in the last few years is that you can start measuring someone's happiness, their productivity, their well-being. So data on the people who are actually in the building. You can measure how well they're using the building. So you have very often lots of meeting rooms of, of 10 people and you only ever find there are two people in there. So you can look at the effectiveness of how people are using the building, how the building's impacting them. You can measure data on that and that informs the value of the building. Now, it's, it's not yet, sorry, just to, just to add on, it's not yet really built into the valuation process, which is the more formal how do you go through and estimate the value in the UK, for example, from a red book point of view. But if you look at the regulations, so the RICS book is a, is a really good example, what it says in there is that you ought to, as a valuer, use the data that the market or the investor or the, the landlord is using to make decisions. And over the last 5, 10, 15 years, that data that's being used has started to change. I think just in the last couple of years, people are starting to look at much more data inputs to inform their decision-making, whether that's to buy a building, whether that's to uh, rent a building or to move into it. And so all of those data sets need to start feeding into the valuation process. And I think over the next five years, we'll see that happening more and more.
0: Because now we can measure that data. We can measure that data. Whereas in the past we couldn't.
1: Exactly. And that raises a lot of challenges, and I think it would be naive to suggest that, that we're in a situation where it's collected in a, a robust enough way to systematically feed into it. And one of the ways that we, we can do it is, is the way that we've always done valuations, which is employ really clever people to do the valuations. So we use the data in the science, but then we, we look at what's happening, take on other data sets, and the brain's very good at taking unstructured data and applying it. But more and more, we're going to see that feeding through into the structured data valuation process whether that be calculated at uh, the value in a normal way or whether that's using automated valuation models, something that's very well established in the residential market. But for all of these reasons, it's a little bit harder in, in the commercial property sector, but is developing. So I want to
0: go back to the user data conversation for a moment. You talked about the user data being, being able to measure the impact that it's having on those users, their moods, uh, whether they enjoy being in that building. Why does that matter?
1: Well, I think if you look at an office building and, and we 're really focused on offices at, at the moment if you if you look at the purpose of that, people really want to be in an environment where they're, if you run a company, you want your staff to be productive that's effectively the barometer of, of what you 're looking for mm. now for those staff to be pr- productive, you need them to be working hard, but you need them to be happy and healthy, you need them to be engaged with the company. An awful lot of this comes down to the company structure, nothing to do with the building but what we are seeing is Historically, the building was just a shell that people would do this in, and the building is now having a bigger and bigger impact on attracting staff, retention, and crucially on productivity.
0: Can you give some, exa- some specific examples on buildings in the makeup of buildings that has that impact on the user data?
1: Yeah, I think, if you, I think probably actually my, my meeting rooms example is a pretty good simple one. So you can start looking at how well a building is being used because you'll often find that uh, there are areas of a building, whether that's because people are working from home, whether that's because the, the, uh, the meeting room is not the right size, the requirements aren't, aren't appropriate, whatever that might be, you can start looking at the data to understand how the building itself is being used. Now, if you do have, going back to my example earlier, 10 meeting rooms of 10 people, and they're only ever used by two people, then actually you can get a lot more meeting rooms in, which means more people in meetings being more productive, less time wandering around trying to find a meter room, which seems to be a bugbear for all sorts of people all over the place. And so you can start looking at the usage of a room or, or a set of rooms to improve how well that performs over time. And I think that that's just a very small example that yep. you could then apply up to the use of all sorts of things.
0: I can, I can see that example work um, making sense for optimization of the space and making sure that the space operates efficiently. But h- how would that Example, or are there other examples that talk about the the moods and and not just productivity, but the the happiness of the team? Because that leads into talent acquisition and making companies competitive in the war for talent.
1: I think there's probably a lot of examples, and almost all anecdotal. But if you look at things like the Leaseman Index, looking at offices, you can start looking at what is it that people want in their workplace. And I certainly, as real estate companies attract or want to attract more and more tech uh, resources. I've heard plenty of stories of people coming in for an interview and literally turning around before even going to the interview just because they're not happy to be in that building. And I think that that's that's very anecdotal, but it does show that how the building works for people matters to whether they go in and work somewhere. And I think if you look at the Leaseman Index, you look at some of the scorecards that companies will run themselves on just satisfaction, the impact of the building, the impact of the office environment is becoming more and more important. And it's not just about when you're in the office, it's about flexible working more generally. So how do you work from home? How does that blend with being in an office and what do you do at the different times? But I think that the, across the board, we're seeing people ask more and more questions and there'd be more and more anecdotal evidence. What we haven't seen is the systematic collection of data that you can use across a portfolio. And that's what you're advocating for. That's what I think will happen. I think it's already starting. It's just, it's going to take a long time to feed through in a robust way. But there are examples of companies using facial recognition, for example, to understand from either a security point of view or a happiness point of view or just a person identification point of view. And so we can start using technologies like facial recognition to understand how happy someone appears. You can start monitoring health to understand how, literally how healthy they are. There's an awful lot of sensors around to understand things like temperature, air quality, and you can, you can apply that to assume how healthy people are. What that also raises is a really interesting question about ethics. Because if you look at the value of the building being about how happy and productive someone is, you should really be using facial recognition to understand them. You should be tracking where they are in the building. You should be looking at their health, their productivity, and all of these different sort of things. But at the same time as that, that starts becoming pretty invasive. And not that many people want to... Want to, to give that data away to their employer yeah. so there's a really interesting debate for the real estate sector not just what data can be collected and what should be collected but it's actually how it's then applied and how do you communicate that with people
0: so obviously this season we're talking about spaces and service and maybe I'm you know trying to connect some different dots here but am I, am I right in connecting the dots that the right spaces and service make up in a building will positively affect the valuation of an asset.
1: I think that the right makeup of the portfolio will affect the valuation and the space as a service is going to be a large part of that. There's no question that it's worth probably unpacking a little bit about what the space as a service mean. And it's one of those phrases that probably means slightly different things to different people. From my point of view, it means two things. One is you're providing a real service for the people in that building. It's no longer, here's a brick, four brick walls, go and do your stuff. It's about providing the overall service, the gym, the coffee, the brand, the technology, infrastructure, everything else about it. So, so that's the first thing which is different. The other thing is it's, it's about being on demand. So, so whilst it isn't literally by the minute, it is meaning it's a much quicker turnaround. So, for example, looking at, at you guys as an example, you can book meeting rooms for two hours or you can have an office space for a month, whatever it is. And that means that the transactions are happening much, much quicker. So I'm not sure we're really into real-time data yet, but we are certainly moving beyond 25-year leases. And so that space as a service means that you can offer much better services at high value because people will pay for it. You can get more people in there and you can, you can react much quicker to that, those tra- changing transactions. Now, I'm not an asset manager, nor would I, would I recommend any particular uh, percentage of, of allocation. In my view, there'll be different buildings and different portfolios will have different answers. But for sure, I do think there'll be a need to have a flexible mixture of all of those different approaches. So you can, you can have the longevity and also the flexibility, short-term income, long-term. And it'll, be trying to, it'll effectively depend on what you're trying to achieve from the overall portfolio.
0: So p- picking up on what you were saying, traditionally, building valuations were a relatively simple equation. And I'm going to be very high level here, so forgive me for that. But... Lease length times square foot rate times the covenant strength of the tenants. There's your valuation. But since flexibility, especially around term length, is the core characteristics of of spaces of service, as you just talked about, asset owners have had to limit the footprint of spaces of service in their building, at least in the conversations that I've had recently. They've tried to limit spaces of service in their building, often fearing a negative impact on valuation. But on several of our episodes already this this season, uh, we talk about the growth and demand for spaces of service. Some companies even expect to have an access, access to 20% on top of their lease space in a building. They want that access, as and when, flexible. So how do you see this changing valuation methodologies? How do you see the response to this demand for flexibility in, in, in growing in the portfolio of a building as a footprint, affecting the methodology of valuations?
1: So I think that's a really good question. I think there are uh, probably a couple of little points to make on on splitting that up. So the first one is that the way that you value a building at the moment, of course, you want the highest possible income for as long as possible at the lowest risk. Effectively, that's what you want. And we've been in an environment where that's kind of the norm and it's getting shorter and shorter. So against that long-term stable guaranteed income, you also have to balance... What the customer wants because effectively if you have a long-term stable income that no one wants then it's not really that good an income
0: which by the way if i can make a point on that anthony slumbers has often said that those long leases if nobody wants them anymore what is the real value of them
1: absolutely and so and so we're at an interesting point where we are always going to be naturally trying to make as much money with as low risk as possible and then we also need to balance to giving the customer what they want Now, those two extremes means that you have to come up with a different blend for different buildings, depending on what you're trying to achieve. And I think that the value of the building, what what that is, uh, the value to you as a landlord or an investor is going to be different depending on what you're trying to achieve. Now, slightly separately from the value is the valuation, which sounds as though it's exactly the same thing. But that's really now when I'm talking about the red book valuation of how do you go through and do a valuation to produce the value out of it? And what we're going to see is that offices have a relatively standard way of doing it. But if we're talking about space as a service, you're talking about customer focused, you're talking about brand technology, quick movements. Actually, that's something that's been around a long time in things like hotels. Yep. So what we're going to see is not necessarily a change in any of the methodologies that exist. We'll see different methodologies used. And I think that's going to be a really interesting challenge because for some people that might mean prices, values go up. And for some people, that means that the value will go down. So we're at this very interesting time, I think, where inherently the value of a building is not necessarily going to be calculated in the same way as the valuation process would have it done. And that's not a criticism of the valuation process. It's just about how, how you go through using the data and the flexibility. And you, you get that balance between customer focused and, and longevity of, of risk. Well,
0: I understand it ricks is actually working on an addendum to the red book right now to to talk about these things and to to give some guidelines around space as a service will in your view do you think space as a service will become a recognized asset class
1: i think that uh so, so obviously can't talk on behalf of ricks anymore that i've, I've left a couple of years ago but i do know that ricks have done a lot of work in this space generally looking at how values and valuations are changing i think that ricks gets or at least the red book sometimes gets overly criticized because actually it's very much a principles-based uh, process. So it's left to the, uh, the, ex- uh, the expert or the professional. And from a data point of view, it says that it should be using the data that's used in the market. So actually the, the red book I think is, is sometimes overly criticized. And I think that what we're going to see is more and more space as a service in the office market. And I think we're going to see uh, more and more data informing that Space as a service for me is about how you use a space and it being customer focused. It's not necessarily its own asset class. So I think that whilst we will see a bigger focus and a bigger share of the market being space as a service and flexible and so on, for me, you're still going to have an office market. And I think that the office market will be the office market and some of that will be flexible and some of that won't. So I wouldn't say it's going to be an asset class in itself in in the traditional sense. I think it's going to be a huge part of Existing structures. Now, the other thing I'd say is that I do think there'll be a blurring of all the sectors. So, more and more people are working from home, for example, one day a week or two days a week. People are working from coffee shops. People are working from offices clearly, sometimes fixed desks, sometimes on a flexible basis. And I think we're going to become much more themed around how do we get Mr. or Mrs. X to be more productive in their work, which will combine all of that rather than just. How does this office work today for this one person and assume that that applies across the the rest of the year?
0: Well, I want to maybe challenge you on that a little bit because if if we think about the way office buildings have been valued in the past, going back to that high-level example I gave with the equation of the square foot rate, the the lease term, and, and the covenant strength. If the lease terms are coming down, then in theory that would mean that the value of the asset would come down in that equation. So if we're not going to create another asset class to accommodate assets that have a portion or the whole asset being flexible in in short terms, how do you measure that? Without Without another asset class, how do you bring that in? Do you evolve the existing equation? Or are you saying it's all down the data?
1: So I think if you had a building now, which was a third residential, a third office, and a third hotel, for example, then, then you can value that. And the, the processes, the data very broadly are all in place to, to, to do that. Now, if we flip out the hotel and say that that's flexible space because it works in the same way and, and we apply the same principles, the difference there is whether it's a hotel or an office doesn't matter so much. It's about how do you apply the income and the risk and the tools to support those different calculations for the different types of use of the building. But hotel, hotel is an asset class, right? It, it is, absolutely, but, okay. but I don't think there's any reason why you couldn't say that two-thirds of the building in that case was office, but, but a half of that office space is flexible. So you would calculate it differently, okay. but it would still be an office class. I mean, effectively, effectively, you're right that you would be working out parts of the building in a different way from other parts, which is your, your point, I think. Okay. So I agree with that completely. Whether it gets counted as a different asset class or not, maybe it doesn't matter too much.
0: Different methodology, maybe not the different asset class. Yes. Okay, fair enough. Personally, I think there should be a different asset class, but <laughs> as, long as, as long as we're recognizing that that part portion is, is a different it's a different calculation and it doesn't negatively affect the valuation, that's what's important to me.
1: Well, I, I would agree with that. I, I actually think there's another add-on bit, which is if you have an office, which is traditionally at least over several years, having a flexible workspace in there gives you the, the income for two floors or whatever you have it over. It also adds value arguably to the, the, to the rest of the building because you add other facilities and community and you look at some of the really big projects out there at the moment, and I know you spoke to some of the people who are working on those as part of these podcasts, then actually building a wider community is becoming really, really important to people. So, so I think that having a, a flexible offering can add more value than just within those two floors. So
0: just to be clear, re- regardless of whether it becomes its own asset class, you think space as a service or flexible workspace, co-working, whatever we want to call it, you think that should mimic or be similar to the existing
1: model for hotels? I think there is a lot of synergy, yes. And I think, I think ultimately a building which works very, very well for the people in it who are prepared to pay for that and are going to hang around for a long time is going to be a more valuable building than one that doesn't do any of that. So the valuation process has to catch up with that because ultimately that is the value of the building.
0: So the serviced office sector has been around for decades. Hotels are re- a are, are recognized asset class we talked about. Why is it taking so long for commercial real estate to evolve in this area?
1: Well, that's a great question. I think I that think real estate is a sector, well, there are probably a few reasons. So one is, one is that the real estate sector is, is often criticized as being slow to move. And I think, I think we can often see that being true and fair. But I do also think that real estate, certainly from an investment point of view, is attractive because it is slow to move, it is counter-cyclical, it does not react like equities. And I think if you look at the top asset owners, often the real estate is in there because it doesn't react like other elements. And so because of that, the attractiveness of our sector is that it is slow. And so therefore, we attract people who are low risk and slow to move. It's a very slow, stable environment. Now, actually, that's been a massive advantage for real estate. And I think that real estate is a pretty effective and efficient sector for the way it used to work. What we're finding now is that that we now have people coming into our buildings who only want to be there for a short time. They want much more more from the building than they used to have. They're happy to pay for it sometimes and not to others, business models will change it. So all of a sudden, as an environment, we've never had to change very much as a real estate sector. So our processes, our people, our characteristics, our skills, Everything is about going through slow, steady, low risk. And it's only now we're getting to the stage as as a sector where we're having to really change quite quickly. I think that causes a lot of problems. If you go to a lot of the large corporates, then they'll work on several years business planning and they will go through several different processes and committees and organizations. And actually, they're, they're pretty good on the whole because they're good at making the right decision that's in a low risk way. The problem we've got now is that doesn't really work we need to make quick decisions that and if they don't work change and do something else absolutely and that's where the sector i think has got a real challenge is about understanding that much broader cultural change and we need to make really quick decisions but we need to keep changing them if they're not working as opposed to let's build 10-year perfect decision and go after that
0: so i have a quick fire round coming up uh which means we'll have a couple of quick questions you'll respond to quick answers and and close it out. But before we get in, I have one more question. Um, we were talking earlier before we started this about Drawer Poleg and, um, in his book. and um, I don't know if you've had a chance to read his, his article uh, on LinkedIn, but he talks about the, the way the future of real estate will be capitalized and, and it'll be a mix of investor profiles. Do you think that with space as a service, having a different recognized valuation methodology, whether that becomes an asset cost or not? Do you think that the investor profiles in real estate is going to change as a result?
1: So, I, I haven't yet read Draw's book nor seen the article, but I am intending to read both. I'll send both to you. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm intending to read both. So, so, I think that real estate as an investment class is a really interesting place generally because going back to what I was saying earlier, it is really attractive as an alternative because it's kind of cyclical and it's slow and stable, but it gives really good returns. And certainly when I was working at IPD, now MSCI, you could see that makeup and you could see how it fits into the broader strategies. What's really interesting is that as real estate gets quicker and quicker, and there's more and more data, there's more and more transparency, there's, there's a decision I think to be made by the whole sector about, do we turn this into the perfect asset class so it can work in any different way, or do we shoot ourselves a little bit in the foot with, it, with, with getting rid of the things that are very strengths? And I think that what's going to happen is we're going to see more and more money flowing into real estate because it's going to be a huge global problem. I think that will come through lots of different ways and lots of different mechanisms. So certainly, I think there'll be a a broader type of investor. I think that you look at how, without getting into things like tokenization, how real estate is going to be broken down into smaller chunks so it becomes an easier asset to invest in. I think we're going to see more and more of moving forward. I think none of that's about technology, but it's all enabled by technology. So certainly I think we're going to get more investors investing in different types of building for different reasons in different methodologies.
0: In his, in his article, he makes a case for uh, looking at the hotel industry where, you know, for instance, Marriott. Marriott has their, their operating company and then they have their, their REIT, the, the company that owns the asset. So the operating company has its own investors and the asset um, company has its own investors. Because there are different returns and different risk profiles I, I could see that happening here as drawer talks about so I'm a, I'm a big fan of drawer of course but i i can certainly see that happening here
1: I, I think that's true and i think if you look at if you compare real estate going back to your previous question about speed if you look at the real estate sector and and the profile of a business typically if it's a people business it's about service delivery the cost of actually starting up a business is pretty easy to scale it's quite expensive you look at the technology side of things, actually, a technology company has to spend quite a lot of money to get a product that's up and running. But once you've got that, scaling it up is quite easy. And of course, there are lots of different factors that influence both of those. But just that investment profile is not something that typically the real estate, the change in investment profile isn't what the real estate sector is set up for. And so there's a very strong argument, I think, for having different companies under the same umbrella, so sort of the traditional opco, propco. But you have different companies who have got different ways of working, different methodologies, different risk profiles, and so on. And I think you can see that all over the place.
0: Are you ready for the quick fire round, Dan? Certainly am. All right. So just a couple of quick questions. So, first of all, you were voted number one prop tech influencer in the UK and most influential global person online in prop tech. But who influences you in the property sector?
1: Oh, such a great question. So real estate, I think, is full of Amazing people, and I think all over the place. I think it'd be really tricky to pick on, on a handful. I think if you look at people like Ann Kemper Atkins or Kath Fontana at Mighty, Amanda Clack at CBRE, Rob Bold, who's now at IPSX and Coyote, Andy Pyle at KPMG. I think yeah. there are so many really good senior leaders who are very well established in the sector, very, very credible, but are also doing amazing things to drive change. Not for the sake of change, but for, to really improve the sector or the buildings or the processes that we do. I think all of those people are amazing. Excellent. What's your
0: favorite podcast to listen to?
1: Well, I feel duty bound to say this one, although I haven't, <laughs> haven't yet listened to it, but I, it will, I'm sure, become so. So um, I listen to the EG Tech Talk uh, yeah, yeah. live ones with, a lot. With Sam and they Emily. Do, with Sam and Emily. I think they do amazing, amazing people, and it's really good to find out. I think slightly further afield from this, I, I listen to one called artificial intelligence with lex friedman oh and he does amazing interviews with amazing people and i understand at least half of what they're talking about <laughs> but but I, that's a great way of finding out about some of the slightly further things more advanced stuff so
0: fascinating i'll have to check that one out myself it's a really good one okay where are you going to go on your next holiday
1: that's a really good question i don't know yet so we're a couple of days away from christmas so yep. i'm going to have some time off with my family and i have a relatively new dog so i'll no doubt be walking her oh, right. a lot which also—it's the dalmatian right it's the dalmatian exactly and and that frees back into the next last question which is where i listen to most of my podcasts so
0: yeah okay well 101 dalmatians <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right finally one, one last question um uh, and this is back to, to the report we were just talking about earlier where can people find
1: it so there's a report that's on our website which is liquidre.com that's liquidrei.com and you can find a copy of the report on there. Always welcome to have feedback. It's really good to get to get some feedback on that report. The report itself looks at the future of valuations where it's going and in particular has a lot of the client's voices in there. And that's one of the main things that we wanted to get across was the client's perspective, which gives some really interesting results.
0: Excellent. Well Dan, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening and until next time, take care of yourself. We've got an exciting and insightful season ahead, and I hope you enjoy every episode. If you do, I'd love for you to share it with that one person who you think should hear the message. You can always find our podcast on our website, workbold.co, and click on podcast. And it would mean a lot to me if you leave the show a five-star review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And finally, please do connect with me on social media. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker on Twitter and Instagram, or just search LinkedIn. Send me a message, a DM, send me your questions. What do you want to hear about next? Comment on my accent or challenge what we've talked about. I want to hear from you. Now, thank you for listening. And don't forget, fortune favors the bold. You're listening to a Podcast Company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at PodcastSyndicator.com or Brett at PodcastSyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.